Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to our text today, Joel chapter 2, that's page 761 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. We're studying through the minor prophets, these little books toward the end of the Old Testament. And this is our second message in the book of Joel, which is written, which was written about 800 years before Jesus was born. And last week we learned this background to the book of Joel, that the people of Israel had become very comfortable in their material blessings. God had given them successful crops and plenty of oil and wine. They had peace. And so he allowed locusts to come on their crops and all their vegetation to destroy their grain, their sources of oil, even wine, whatever they had left of happiness. And we said that God did that not because He's a hateful God, but because He loves us too much to allow us to dehumanize ourselves into becoming creatures who are ungrateful, to live as beasts instead of those made in the image of God. God's love, as we said at the beginning of this series on the Minor Prophets, God at times becomes crazy in His love for us in that He sees what we are doing to ourselves and is willing to do what it takes to bring us back to Himself. Well, if God is the one who allowed this decimation to occur on their land, took away all of their material comforts, and if it is this God who is the one who still does this, who is still the one who loves us too much to allow us to continue on in our self-destructive ways, then what must we do? What good news can there be? Especially when he says, yeah, you think this is bad, wait until you see the day of the Lord, a concept that he introduces, the day of the Lord, that day of great judgment when all of those who continue in their ingratitude will be judged finally. What are we to do? That's what he tells us. He tells us what to do. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, we begin reading there, the day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness, there is spread uh, upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Remember, this is the description of the locusts. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale like warriors. These locusts charge like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. 
They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room, the bride or chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. O Lord, would you open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see wonderful things in this portion of your word, wonderful things of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to absorb our fire that would motivate us to turn toward you afresh or for the first time ever, to turn and be healed. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> Don Carson, or D.A. Carson, is a rather famous theologian who is a friend of a number of us. He was Mary Wilson's professor in Chicago. And he tells the story of an experience he had a number of years ago when a, a man from West Africa moved there asking for help with his German. This man was seeking admission into a Ph.D. program there in Chicago, and he needed help with his German for that degree, and uh, Dr. Carson agreed to tutor him. After they had worked real hard at German and their lessons, then they would retreat for a time with, their, with, uh, with French, their common language. Don is a French-Canadian, and this man from Francophone uh, Africa would, would speak in French. They got to know each other pretty well that way over a number of months, and Dr. Carson said he eventually found out that this man who said that he had gone to a Christian school in West Africa, a school started by missionaries, that this man on the weekend, though he had a, though he had a wife and though he had children, would visit the, effectively, the red light district of Chicago in the weekend. Dr. Carson asked him one day, now, what would your wife think about that? What, what, would your, what would you do 
if you found out that your wife was doing the same thing back home? And he said, matter of factly, I would kill her. That's what we do in our culture there, the culture I was raised in. We would, that, that's uh, shame, and that, that's uh, shameful and dishonorable to the husband. I would have to kill her. And Carson said, didn't you say you went to a Christian school, a mission school? Did they teach you the Ten Commandments? Did they teach you the Seventh Commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Yes, they did. He said, then, then what hope is there for you? That's sin. The man with a cavalier spirit pushed back from the table and laughed and repeated a French saying, a saying in French, I should say. Ah, he said, but God is good. It is his job to forgive. It's repulsive, isn't it? That kind of hypocrisy, that kind of double standard, that demeaning attitude, abusive attitude toward women, that offensive attitude to God that He exists to forgive our indulgences. And so is our sin. So is every sin that we commit, that we cherish, so is every hypocrisy that we have. This idea that we are automatically forgiven, this presumptuous, this presumption that we can have on the goodness of God, that we receive His gifts, we don't owe Him thanks. We gladly receive His forgiveness, it's very convenient when it excuses what we want to do, that we don't give any thought to our sins in thought and word, and yes, deed too, against all of His holy commandments. And if God loves us, and He does, then to get us home to a place where only the holy inherit the kingdom of God only those living in a posture of repentance, then to get us there, He will do what it takes to turn our hearts away from that presumptuous uh, spirit against His grace and turn us back to Himself. That's the, the story of this passage. Now, often we study passages of Scripture, and we look at every verse, and we look at what each one means, and we won't skip over verses. We won't ignore the content of these passages, but sometimes passages provide us a foundation, a catalyst by which we study a very important doctrine. And the doctrine that we must know, a doctrine is a, is a very, very important idea of Scripture that must change the way we live. And the doctrine that is described in this passage is the doctrine of repentance or the practice of repentance, turning away from sin in our hearts, turning away from sin in our culture, turning away from sin in our history, back to the gracious God who alone is holy. So I'm using as a, a kind of a, a loose outline for us uh, a chapter from our Westminster Confession of Faith, 
the Bible is a foundation of our faith, but then our summary of the doctrines, the key doctrines of that faith can be found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is in the back of your hymnal. And on page 718 on that hymnal is a paragraph on repentance. And uh, I'm following roughly that outline, except that I've reduced the outline between my office and here from three points in your bulletin to two. You're going to get two for the price of one. Just these two points that we must observe the marks of repentance, and we must know the motivation for repentance. The marks of repentance are outlined in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they're found by example in all of Joel chapter 2. We're only studying half of it today. We'll study the rest of it next week. The marks of confession are these. How do we know the marks of, of, uh, of repentance are these? How do we know when we are turning appropriately back to the Lord so that we are repenting unto life, the confession says. How do we live in communion with God, in fellowship with God? How do we live in obedience with Him? We live by repenting, in, and that true repentance is characterized in these three ways. It's confession, it is contrition, and it is a change of behavior. Now, confession is necessary. He says in verse 12, you must relent. You must relent, turn back to me, return to me with all your heart. How will they know that they have returned with their heart? What is the first indication of returning? Well, we'll learn later. The first indication of their returning is by speaking. It is by confessing their sins. It is by acknowledging in their heart, yes, I am everything that your Bible says I am. I am not who your Bible says I am supposed to be. I acknowledge that. Now, confession requires a couple of things. It requires, first of all, naming our sin accurately, naming it. The confession says we are to repent of particular sins particularly. And you repent of particular sins particularly by naming them, by calling them what they are. Lying is lying, not just prevarication. When we say, I am a competitive person, that could mean, no, you have anger that is bound up in the bosom of fools. When you say to your spouse, you know, I just have had a bad day, it might be more accurate to say that when you said that thing to me, it aggravated me and at that moment I hated you. It is naming sin accurately rather than giving some euphemism that, that somehow makes it more palatable, more socially acceptable to you and those around you, naming sin accurately. Call it what it is. And then it is to, to confess it, to speak it meaningfully. It is to speak it meaningfully. It is to, it is to say that uh, it is to confess it to someone else. 
who matters to you. Don't just hide in your prayer closet and say, you know, Lord, at that moment when I said that thing to my wife or my husband or my child or that clerk at the store, I really hated them in my heart. It might actually mean going to your wife or your husband or your family member, the one who matters, whose heart you've broken, and telling them the truth about what is going on in your heart and asking forgiveness. It is to name it accurately. It is to speak it specifically. The Bible says in James 1 that we must confess our sins to one another. It's something about it, isn't it? When we, when we confess our sins to God, especially if we've grown up knowing the gospel and grown up in the church, it seems safer to talk to God about our sin than it does to confess it to another person. But let me tell you, as a pastor, this is one thing I've noticed, and I've noticed in my own heart as well. It is, it, it is one of the ways you can break repetitive sin. If you're caught in a, an addictive sin, you're caught in a besetting sin, and you, you want to break the pattern and the habit of that sin, it is very helpful to confess it to someone whose opinion matters of you. There's nothing like telling someone the real truth about yourself and watching their countenance fall that will create a searing memory that will help you battle that sin. And how much more if you imagine the face of your heavenly Father? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the next characteristic of, a, a, of a true repentance is not just confession, it is contrition. Notice he says, return to me, verse 12, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Give indication. Give some, there, there must be some indication that your heart is rended. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Fasting, weeping, mourning. It is to acknowledge, as the Westminster Confession says there in that paragraph, that uh, it, it is to acknowledge the filthiness and odiousness of our sin. It's not just, Lord, I slipped up today. I'm really sorry about that. Try to do better next time. Oh, Father, my sin is filthy. It is a stench before you. And though my whole culture may tell me that this is entirely appropriate, that this is just the way we act, before you, before a holy God, I know this is what it is. Now, let me suggest a way that you can get at just how bad our sins are. If you look in the, a, a little bit farther into your hymnal, a few pages beyond the Westminster Confession, is the Westminster Shorter Catechism that was written to teach our children the doctrines of the faith. And there is uh, in there, in, in that Westminster Shorter Catechism, in the 70s and 80s, those questions that are numbering in the 70s and 80s, an exposition of the, each of the Ten Commandments. And uh, for the, each of the commandment is, what's, 
what uh, duties are prescribed, what are the positive things prescribed, and what are those things that are prohibited by the commandments. Here's a helpful uh, exercise in your, in your daily devotions. Take just one set of questions per day. Start with the first commandment. What is, what is prescribed? What is, what is commanded? What is prohibited? And just read through it and ask if you can say after you have read through that, got that one down, let's move on to number two. Maybe you could start with number 10, the 10th commandment, which speaks back through all the others because it describes uniquely the sin of the heart, the sin of coveting. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism shows us by, by taking, not because they invented it, but because they take all of the verses of Scripture and, uh, about coveting and they, 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 they put them all together in short little phrases and summarize what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches, among other things, is that any time we fail to rejoice over a good thing that has happened to our neighbor, we have broken the Tenth Commandment. Not just that we are that we're actively jealous and actively coveting, but if we fail to rejoice, to be truly happy that a good thing has happened to them that has not happened to us. Anyone left standing? And God says anyone who offends even against one of the least commandments has sinned against them all. And so there we are, automatically guilty of all the commandments. And it should break our hearts. What keeps us from real contrition? Especially in our subculture, and here's where I'll dip down into verses 15 to 17, which was it's going to be just the third point, but here's a good place for it. What keeps us from what keeps us from contrition over our sins? It is because in our particular southern subculture, which I have grown up in myself, public shame is much more important to us than sin before God. Oh, we can sin before God and we can easily go into our prayer closet and confess our sin and move on our way. But should something that is embarrassing, and not all the Ten Commandments are embarrassing to our subculture, but if should, some of the, some, should something happen to us or something that another commandment, they have many commandments added to the Ten Commandments in our culture, should we fail one of those? That is worse. We feel it to be worse than sin against God. Oh, it's one thing you say, if I wander onto a, a, a website that I shouldn't look at, and I just uh, pop into my prayer closet and say, God, forgive me for that little lapse today. It's another thing. If it should be exposed to our friends and business partners and those in our social circles. Or what if they find out that we are not the, the honest business people that they thought we were? What if they find out that we're… It's actually, 
It's actually more shameful to us, some of us, if our children don't get into the right college than it is that we gossip. The law of shame is sometimes more powerful than the law of God. And God says that there are numerous things that are an abomination to him, but few of the things that, that he mentions as particular abominations to him are abominations to us. Like pride or gossip or backbiting or jealousy or covetousness. Oh, those are the things that uh, we say, forgive me, Lord, for, and God says, they're an abomination to me, a stench in my nostrils, repulsive. Contrition is seeing sin the way God sees it and calling it such and feeling about it as such. The Bible has two dramatically different examples of what true contrition is and what is not in David and Saul. David did horrible things. He lusted after Bathsheba. He uh, uh, brought her into his home. He had her husband killed so as to cover it up and take her into his home and make it look like the baby was from the two of them after marriage. Saul, on the other hand, essentially failed to do what the Lord said to do, which was to get rid of the material idols of the conquered Philistines. He was told to do a lot of things, but among those things was to get rid of all the goods. I don't want you to benefit from the plunder. I want you to make a statement before the people of God. I will supply your needs, and you will not need to look to the world and to evil to supply your needs. You need to rest on me. But Saul grew grew materialistic. He grew stingy. And so he kept some of those things, kept their livestock and so forth. And when God confronted him, when God confronted him, what was Saul's response? Saul said, oh, please, would you offer a sacrifice for me so that I won't cease to be king? Would you offer a sacrifice for me so that I just don't get embarrassed? Whatever you do, whatever you do, just keep me from getting embarrassed. On the other hand, what about David? David, uh, as soon as he heard that his sin had been exposed to God through the prophet, even though nobody else knew about it, David fell on his face and wept and asked the Lord to forgive him. And we have his whole confession in Psalm 51 against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right when you judge. He made no excuses. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. He didn't blame it on having a bad night, being on cold medicine, whatever. All the other excuses I've heard for such sin. He called it what it was. And he accepted God's severe mercy and discipline as a result of it. David was forgiven. And Saul was not. If we were judging just by our senses, what would we say is a greater offense against God? 
what David did or what Saul did? Surely we would say it's David. And God was too hard on Saul by taking the kingdom away from him. But if we judge it that way, then we reveal that we're not seeing sin God's way. How many of us, when we read this confession of sin on our knees today and read this line, we repent of our narcissistic preoccupation. How many of us said, I hope so-and-so is listening to that? If so, thou art the man, thou art the woman guilty of narcissism. Contrition is seeing sin the way God sees it, calling it as such, and being broken by it. And the proof that you have confessed, called sin what it is, and that you are contrite, and is that you and I change. Repentance is to turn, is to do an about face and start walking a different way. It is to turn to the Lord first. It is to label sin what it is and turn from it to God. And the Bible says that it is to look at all sin that way. Yes, first and most obviously your own sin, but then also the sin of your culture and the sin of generations before you. It is to look at it and call it what it is and to turn your back on it and say to God, you're right, that is sin. And I promise you, I pledge to turn from my sin. I turn, pledge to turn from that which was sin. I pledge to turn from that which is sin in my culture. I turn from it to you. That's the way the Bible teaches it. Everywhere the Bible teaches that. You notice that in the book of Joel, God doesn't say, now, there are some priests and there's a mom over there and there's somebody else. I want you to stand over there because you're innocent and the rest of you I want to repent. He calls on them corporately. It was the, the nature of of. The Bible, it is the nature of the Bible to call all people to repentance. To call all people to label sin what it is and turn from it. Even if you're not guilty in participating directly in it. To call it what it is and endeavor to turn from it. Think of that passage that we know almost better than any other as evangelicals, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. We've memorized it. We pray it. We've shouted it through megaphones at the rest of the world, at the rest of America. If you people would turn from your wicked ways, God would heal our land. But the message of that passage, as is the message of the book of Joel and all of the prophets and all of the scriptures is, if my people will lead the way in repentance, 
by turning from sin, getting a holy God squarely before their vision, and confessing that even if they're not responsible for that particular sin, they are certainly not holy and in need of mercy. If my people will lead the way of repentance, I will heal their land. How do you get at that attitude of being, of confessing, of being contrite, of endeavoring to change? It is by getting the face of Jesus squarely before you. remember in a situation when I was a very little boy, my parents had a, a little retail store, and, and uh, I knew that my dad was the boss, and my mom worked in the store too, and I had, I had learned enough, I'd seen enough that shoplifting is not a good thing, that you shouldn't take something that's not yours and, and, not pay, and leave the store without paying for it. But I had also, early in life, developed a double standard. No one had to teach me that. I just felt it, that those laws don't apply to me because this is all our stuff anyway. So I really liked what I really liked in the store better than anything else are those little decal, those little numbers and letters, you know, that you put on your mailbox or whatever. And I just learned the alphabet. So I knew enough to be stealthy. I turned the, the carousel such a way nobody could see me, and I, I took 26 letters and I stuffed them in my pocket. We got to lunch that day, and I, and I was so proud. I was going to show my parents that I knew the alphabet and that I was going to stick it on the mailbox. And I pulled all the letters out, and I dumped them on the table, and I started arranging them. And I thought that my parents would chuckle and say how cute and so proud of me and so forth. But I looked up in the silence, and my parents were both in tears. They were shaking their heads. And my mother said, how could you do that? And my dad said, don't you know that's stealing? And we don't steal. I said, no, I'm not stealing. I'm a member of the family. This is all our stuff anyway. And I could see that that didn't fly either. You know, they didn't, uh, they didn't beat me with a rod. Their reaction said everything you will take those back and you will explain to our assistant manager what you did and never do that again. I'll never forget the looks of their faces. And there have been numerous times that I've been on the cusp of temptation. And believe me, I've fallen to every temptation constantly. I'm not, I'm preaching everything to myself as well. But there have been many times when I've been faced with a choice and I've thought down the line at what my parents' faces would look like if they found out I had done that. How much more? Should the blood-stained face of Jesus Christ, the blood dripping from His wounds, His bruised and beaten body hanging on the cross, how much more should that be a motivator to us as well? I must not do that. The Father did that for me. Why would I sin so presumptuously against Him? Let it break your heart. But even that will not be enough. Just that visual image will not be enough. 
to move you to respond to God the way he describes in this passage. It must be the grace of God, the loving kindness, the overwhelming mercy of God that we find described in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Though it's not in quotation marks here, as the earlier verse is, this is a quotation from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, a a situation we, we studied when we studied through the book of Exodus, isn't it? When the people of God had sinned against Him in the in the valley with uh, idols, and, uh, and, 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 and Moses comes down, and he breaks the tablets in, in anger, and he goes back up to the Lord, and the Lord says, move over, I'm going to destroy them all, and Moses pleads with them, please, please, blot me out of your book before, they blot, before you blot them out, but Lord, show me who you are in your essence. I'm not sure you can put up with these people. I don't want to get out farther in the desert and have you turn, lose your temper, and destroy them all. I need to know what makes you tick. I need to know your resume. Are you capable? Are you qualified for leading a stiff-necked, continually sinful people, hypocritical people like these? Show me your glory. And God passes by in front of him, and he says, here is my glory. I'm the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy, forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is not just that gory sacrifice, that gory visual image of Jesus on the cross. It is rather the the heart of God that put him on the cross that says to us in, in John, we have beheld his glory. We've beheld the glory of God. It is Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. It must be the grace of God manifested in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that breaks our hearts and turns us back without looking at anyone else with blinders on our eyes, too humble to lift our eyes to heaven and say, have mercy, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Even that you can't do on your own. The Bible teaches, and this this passage alludes to the fact in verses 18 and uh, and. And, chapter, and, and verses 28 and 38, all these, these results of repentance, it demonstrates that, we, that, that repentance is a gift. The Bible teaches that. 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 25, Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Acts 5, 31, various places throughout the Bible, it teaches that repentance is something we cannot do on our own. It is a grace we must receive. Lord, we look at our sin and we say, this is horrible. And Lord, I will not respond to it the way I should unless you break my heart and give me the gift of repentance. This sin in my culture that I wink at, this sin in, my, in the past history that I wink at, Lord, I will not view it the way you view it unless you grant me the ability to call it what you do 
to speak out against it and to turn from it that I endeavor after to be newly obedient. And what do you find when you ask for that gift of repentance? You find that Jesus has gone before you and has actually repented in your place. You know, when Jesus was following the Spirit, the Spirit was leading him. He led him into the desert to face temptation, and he battled and he defeated each category of temptation, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And then he went to John the Baptist, and he said, I must be baptized and John said, you need to baptize me, not be. No, I do this to fulfill all righteousness. What righteousness did Jesus have to fulfill? What was the purpose of John's baptism? His was the baptism of repentance. Why did Jesus need a baptism of repentance? Because he was repenting in our place. When we turn from sin... Whatever it is, whoever's doing it, and we turn to a holy God, we see that we are, we are infinitely unholy compared to His holiness. And we must not only have the gift of repentance given to us, we need someone to help us repent of our repentance. And there we see Jesus not just hanging on the cross, but the one raised from the dead to enable us to live in a way that we would never live on our own. Here's the simple answer to that question. What are we supposed to do? What can we possibly do given the threat against us for sin? We turn to Jesus. There we find everything. I have a good friend who's a pastor in Central Florida, outside of Tampa, Florida. He's, his name is Ray Cortez. He's a very, very dear friend, a mentor to me. He's, near, he's nearing retirement. <clears throat> One of the most amazing things about his ministry is what he tells about himself and his congregation. He's built a the Lord has used him to build a tremendously large and vibrant congregation. But even after all of their initial success, he had a, an almost another conversion experience where he realized that he was proud. And he thought that, he, that, that God favored him because he worked so hard and he was so disciplined and because he prayed so much and because he did so much evangelism. He, he did so many good things. And his congregation was being blessed because they do so many good things. And he would hammer on them week after week after week. They needed to be better, needed to be better. The Lord crushed him. And when he did, he made him so much more beautiful and so much more effective as a preacher of the gospel. Well, not too long ago, uh, Ray was at his fitness center, the, the place where he goes to the YMCA or something, wherever he goes to exercise. And in that fitness center, is a, the lead trainer was a former prostitute. 
and uh, she decided to reform her own life, and she became a fitness trainer and worked her way up in this organization. And, and um, Ray and some of his other people who go to that fitness center led her to Christ. They invited her to church. She came to church. She never thought that God would ever be able to accept somebody with a past like hers, but she embraced Him, and she became a powerful evangelist. One day, Ray overheard a, a conversation with another client, a nun. And uh, the nun was there because she said she had, she, had, she had so much stress in her life, and she, she just needed to get her life in better balance, and she was just she was working herself to death. The trainer was getting to know her and so forth, and, and uh, she said, you know, I really try, I really try, I try very hard to be a good, good person. I want to please God, but I'm just exhausted. The former prostitute trainer said, well, you're going about it all wrong. You can't work your way to God. The, the gospel is good news. It's something that only can be accepted. When you accept it, Jesus cleanses you of your sins, and then He gives you a motivation to do the right thing in response to His grace because He's lived and died and been raised in your place. That will free you up. You'll feel a lot better. You'll have a lot more energy if you just live for Christ the way He calls you to live. She said, uh, you, you know, I'm a former prostitute, and Jesus does that for me, cleanses me of my sins, and he gives me a new reason to live. And that guy over there, he's even worse off. That's my pastor. He's a preacher. He's the one who taught me. Ray said, there was a picture of the gospel. Whether you're a preacher or a prostitute or a nun. There's only one way to live in rich and deep and liberating fellowship with God. It is to turn to Jesus, to see sin exactly the way it is as He calls it, and receive His whole gift for it, and experience that motivation which alone enables you to live perseveringly to the end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would turn our eyes upon you, and we would see your holiness as well as your sacrifice. We would not look at one another, people in our culture, and say, oh, I thank you that I'm not like one of them, but rather enable us to become the lead repenters in our, in our families, in our church, in our business, in our city, for the world. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, 